Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, we're starting a new adult ed class on church history. Um, Camper and I have actually been doing a lot of work on, I guess, revitalizing or restructuring adult ed. So this is kind of one of the first new things we're doing, kind of a trial run, and we'll share more details later, but we're trying to hope to have something like a two or three year all-encompassing courses and stuff that we could all go through and um, learn and grow together. So, uh, church history, this may be about eight to 10 weeks, depending on how quickly I can get through things. I'm going to go over about 2,000 years of history, which is, I have to figure out what I'm gonna cut because there's <laughs> so much to cover. So, some weeks we may take our time on one or two subjects. Some weeks we may just blow through a lot just to be able to get uh, through things. Um, but my goal is to give you an overview of the 2,000 years of church history we've had in, in, our, in, our, in, our, in Christ's church. Um, and from there, to get you interested in studying on your own, to learn more about things that you want to study and, and learn about and then grow. Um, this is a discipleship-minded uh, course. So the point of this is to uh, help each other become more like Christ, um, to learn from those who have gone before us. And thus my course title is called Cloud of Witnesses from Hebrews because the people have gone before us, they've already run the race. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to run the race because there's, as if the people have gone before us, they are, they are watching us run the race. And so we can look to them for encouragement to help us run our race. So um, today, what I wanna do is go over some foundations, um, the purpose of church history, what it is, why we study it. And so I just wanna just go quickly around though. If you were to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most knowledgeable about church history and one knowing absolutely nothing, please let me know. So for me, I'm probably gonna say like a six or maybe a seven. Anyone else? Steve? Three. Three, all right. I'll say five or six. Five or six, all right. Two. Two. <laughs> Two. Any tens? Good. Because <laughs> they should be up here. <laughs> All right. So, um, okay, that's good. So we've got some knowledge. Um, and so, again, I just want to share an overview, get you thinking about some things, get you knowledgeable about them, some things so you can go and study on your own and then share it with others. All right. So... Um, let me start off with this quote. History can be a great source of strength and affirmation in difficult, dangerous times. So I would say pretty much anyone, anywhere, if you go on the globe throughout all of history has been in difficult, dangerous times. Um, but before, we, before I turn to my next slide, why do you guys think we should study church history? Because people don't change. <laughs> Yep. See, I'll, I'll give the opposite answer because people change in predictable reactionary ways. Okay. You'll stand by if you don't study history, you're destined to repeat it. Cicero said, to remain ignorant of what has happened before you were, you were born is to remain always a child. 
It's along those same lines. Because God doesn't change. Very, that's true. Very good. All right, so I'm going to propose five reasons, although there are many more, but five reasons that I want to focus on this morning. Five reasons to study church history. Wow, can't read that. All right. The first one, I think, is obviously the most important to cultivate our growth in Christ. So I've already mentioned that a little bit. Um, when, we, when we look at the people who have gone before us and we start to look at their examples, we can see how they responded in faith or did not respond in faith. And that's what the chapter in Hebrews is about, the hall of faith. We have all these people that are listed there. They're considered um, those who have gone to glory. But if we know their stories, they, they messed up big time. But they still have faith in God. And it's God who does the work in their lives. Um, the second reason is to, uh, let's see, these are out of order here, but to curb our arrogance. So let me explain. C.S. Lewis, he said that every third book you should read should be one from the past. This was to curb what he called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is, and I'm quoting from him, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. You must find out first why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted or did it merely die away as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or, or falsehood. So what do you guys think about? So he's basically saying just because we are later on in the timeline doesn't mean that we're smarter. We also don't, um, we don't experience things that people have experienced in the past necessarily because their culture and circumstances were completely different than ours. And so we can learn things from those who have come before us because they experience things that perhaps we will never experience or our culture has not experienced yet. And so we can look to them for examples. So. Basically, don't be arrogant. Don't think that we know everything just because we, are, we come later. All right? Number three is to prevent error. Uh, much of the history of the church was about battling and preserving the church against error. A lot of the doctrine that we believe and subscribe to today is, became out as a result of preventing heresy from creeping into the church. Um, much of the errors of the early church that they dealt with, we still continue to deal with today. Um, so for example, Jehovah's Witnesses are a new form of an old error. Does anyone know what that might be? Arminianism, or uh, yeah, Arianism, sorry, Arianism. Basically that the son was a created being. So the early church battled with that. Um, I always say, um, I think Dan, you said that um, old errors, come in new forms, they're just repackaged. So we're dealing with the same stuff in, in new shiny packages. And so we can look to people who have already dealt with these errors and see how they dealt with them for our own benefit. All right, number four, to provide an apologetic. Why do you think church history could help us provide an apologetic for our faith? At this point, almost any objection that you could raise has been dealt with by a variety of people in probably a myriad number of consistent ways. Okay. The easy example I like to go to is the History Channel's notorious airing of quote-unquote lost gospels. 
and that the early church decided which books would be in the New Testament and just rejected the rest because they wanted power and all that stuff. Well, if you understand how the canon was recognized and then technically um, uh, assumed, how that all came about, I mean, the History Channel, is, that should never be on the air. It's just utter, utter nonsense. So th that's an easy one, a low-hanging fruit there. Um, but if you don't know how it came about, you know, especially if you're a new believer, dealing with um, can you trust the scriptures, I mean, that, that might cause some harm, especially to a new believer. And so knowing how, knowing aspects of history can, you know, help strengthen your faith and also help you come alongside someone who is new, who are struggling with their own faith. All right, and number five, reason to study church history is to understand tomorrow. Understanding where the church has come from and why can prepare the church for what perhaps is about to come upon the horizon. So an example I give, if someone understands why liberal theology came upon the scene in the late 1800s, one can understand why churches are now caving to the culture. So we could see how 100 plus years ago the church dealt with some things when the church started to cave to the culture and therefore inform us um, in our time. How could we learn from them to protect and safeguard our doctrines for, you know, the young people, new believers, those coming to the church. Okay? So those are five reasons. Can anyone think of any others? Lee. I think understanding the history, I mean, it gives you confidence in the, the truth of the Bible as well, because as you go through the history and you see when, you know, the, the canon came about and when the church started going off in different directions that maybe they shouldn't have, how it self-corrected and how that progressed through history to bring us to what we have today. It, it gives you confidence in what you believe in to know that it is true. Yeah. Amen. I, I would say that slightly differently. I would say for me, church history shows that, that Jesus is the commander in chief responsible for the Great Commission. And when we get off, the Lord intervenes and brings us back onto the right track. That's good. And he's been doing it for thousands of years. Yeah. He always seems to raise up leaders that can correct or, or confronts us as things that we haven't really dealt with. And yeah. So we'll see that throughout the, the weeks going forward. Anyone else? You Tim. know, I mean, thinking about the chronological snobbery side of things, I'm thinking about just when I get to know a person, when they get to know me, like, my own history is context, or your history is context to who you are. Like, if I want to get to know Christ Church, it didn't just start in my generation. Like, I would want to get to know the context, the larger story, the big picture. What were the highs? What were the lows? I mean, it's kind of, that's kind of been covered, but I was just thinking about it in my everyday relationships. I want to get to know the depth of the person, the background, etc. It's like, would I not want that for the bride of Christ? Yeah. Yeah. I know for me, uh, um, like my dad especially, spent a lot of time uh, researching my uh, family's history, especially how he came over from Italy and all that stuff. And um, why wouldn't I do that for my spiritual family? Learning about the people that, I, that are my brothers and sisters. All right, so now let me get into the early church. Um, I'm going to go pretty quickly. So Brian, don't get mad. Um, 
I said, don't get mad because I have to go pretty quickly through the early church. So we are in the first century. Um, <clears throat> in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate, he freed uh, the insurrectious Barnabas instead of Christ. Barnabas was probably a zealot, a, f a faction of Jews who resisted the Roman Empire and their rule. In AD 66, a massive rebellion broke out in Jerusalem. Roman legions were called in, and in AD 70, they wiped out the Jewish temple and laid waste to the entire city. Um, Josephus writes about this, and if you ever read his account, his, his account is extremely horrifying. Um, with Judaism, at the time, was forced to take a new form as their entire religious structure centered around the temple. And with no more temple, uh, Judaism began to cape began to take shape as we know it today. So they didn't have a central place to perform sacrifices and things. And so they were spread out. Um, during the Babylon exile, they were you know, exiled and then they were spread out and that was known as the diaspora. And so in a sense, the Jews get dispersed again. And we actually see that in James in his, in his first first to the, to the 12 churches in the dispersion. Um, so they're all spread out now among the Roman Empire. Um, let's see. Um, so when the Jews, they begin to spread out, and over, and even in Babylon, they begin to accept the uh, customs and practices of the cultures that they were living in. Um, they began to assimilate, and there was some pushback and reaction to that. Um, most of the Roman Empire spoke and wrote in Greek, and so the Jews living in the diaspora, they would do the same. Because Hebrew is waning, so this is, this is after the Babylon exile. Hebrew is waning. The Jewish scriptures needed to be translated into Greek. This translation is called the Septuagint, or the version of the 70. So if you see, if you see it in a list of Bibles, you'll see it as LXX. And that's the, that's the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, there's a legend that has 72 scholars all working independently of each other compared their translations and all their translations matched exactly. Ah, whatever. True or not, the legend was meant to claim divine inspiration. And this translation, the Greek translation, was what the early Christians would use to missionize the Gentiles. Um, coupled with the fact that Jewish communities were spread throughout a unified Roman Empire, roads were safe and easy to travel, the Pax Romana, a Roman peace, the timing could not be better for the easy spread of the gospel. Um, <clears throat> So you had, you had this Greek translation already in place. The Jews get spread out, and you can see Paul, he actually goes, usually goes to the Jewish communities first, right? And they've already, they already have some sense and understanding of, of God. So he kind of uses them as a launching point. Roads are easy to travel and safe, so messages are spread far and wide uh, pretty easily. And uh, again, the culture, uh, the language of the empire was Greek, so they already had a translation in place to use um, what we call the Old, Old Testament. Um, and so this all came about because of Alexander, going, stepping back, he conquers a massive area of Europe, parts of uh, Asia, unifies it under the Greek language and customs, which become the Roman Empire, and then we have safe roads and trade. And so, it's interesting, you can see how God's providence has worked in all of this before Christ comes, and now we have almost like a, a, a seedbed set in place for the easy spread of the gospel. And I say easy, but easier. <clears throat> um, so Hebrew communities, they live 
throughout the empire because of the Babylonian exile, so they're already there in place. They translate the Old Testament into Greek, and then the safe roads allow Christians to travel with ready-made Greek text, and then the gospel gets spread far and wide. And so here is the Roman Empire in about the first century. And so these early missionaries of the early church are going around the empire and spreading, spreading the word of Christ. All right, so then we get to the early church, just a couple of uh, descriptions of what they were kind of like. They were small communities. Um, they were islands in the midst of sea of Roman culture. And um, actually, Mr. Simpers, I want to call on you. Can you briefly describe Roman culture for us? It's wickedness and with emphasis on its wickedness and Roman culture based on at this point uh, the emperors are in charge so it really depends on the emperor it also was dependent on a very large bureaucracy that came kind of like unsupervised corruption was rampant immorality was as far as Christianity goes was, was widely celebrated um Life was cheap. It was not uncommon for because of the pattern of values and because of the importance of the uh, passing on of family honor and whatnot to expose children who did not require this. The um, temple prostitution was not uncommon. Divorce was celebrated. Mistresses and Courtesans were widely passed around, at least in Rome. Further out, you got the provinces and the backwards, according to the Romans, things became. No, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, these tiny islands were surrounded by a sea of immorality and, and paganism. Um, let's see. And don't forget, part of the persecution starts in. I haven't got there yet. Part of the persecutions came about because by the, Augustus didn't, he was considered to be a god, but he didn't call himself a god. By the time you get to Tiberius and Nero, they actually considered themselves gods. So here's our and ten. So if you want to pursue Romanitas, you have to at least acknowledge the leader and then go which of course believers might hold that. So that's week two. <laughs> <laughs> Here's our 10, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, no, Brian's right. So I've, I've written here, um, let's see, homosexuality was prevalent, pedophilia was common, drunkenness, public orgies, babies would be left out in the air, uh, open to die, and Christians became known for actually caring for these children. Um, the Christian communities had to constantly guard against the corruption of the faith. The communities relied on each other to help prevent members from falling into deception since they were so small and susceptible to corruption from the culture around them. And so one of, one of the roles even for today in the church is to encourage one another to lift, you, lift us up and keep us from you know, falling into sin or falling into the ways of the world. And so what are some sort of deceptions or cultural practices the church could, it could be or is susceptible to today? Creation worship, worship creation of the creator. Mm -hmm. 
affluenza. What? There's a book called Affluenza, or so affluent. Like we don't. Oh. Anymore. Like nobody here goes hungry. Nobody here is in physical danger of persecution. Like this is yeah. the pinnacle of everything in the last 200 years. It's never been like this before. We don't need God. We got it all. Like, why do we need Him? Yeah. Why get hungry? <laughs> Well, some of them I named that they were going on in the, in the Roman Empire. So trying to change the definition of what marriage is, uh, the transgender stuff, um, you name it, whatever. <laughs> um, but we can actually see um, aspects of this actually in the New Testament, in Second uh, John. Yeah, so, can someone read that for me, please? For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Keep going. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and so, One more. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked reports. Okay, so we've got, um, there are deceivers. So we've got um, the culture. So here's what the early church is dealing with. They've got the culture pressing in against them to conform. Um, they've got the government, in a sense, pressing in against them to conform. Then you've got what Second John here uh, calls deceivers. They were itinerant teachers. They would go around and they would actually use Christian lingo and things, but they were not teaching um, that Christ was the Son of God who came in human form right there in, in um, verse 7, who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So we'll talk about that later. Um, but you've got these people coming in and they would... Um, they would travel around and they would stay in people's homes and eventually, once they realized they, they, they had their, uh, their guests, they had them by the throat, they would stay in their home for a while and they would use it as a home base and they'd almost take over their home. And so there's an early document called the Didache, which means the teaching. It instructed Christians to kick out anyone who had stayed more than two days at their house basically because this stuff was going on. Um, the Didache is a pastoral letter probably addressed to a specific community teaching and instructing its members how to live godly and righteous lives. This is first century. Most writings and theological debates throughout the history of the church were written to address pastoral concerns, such as, especially for these early communities, how do I live in a deeply immoral culture while living for Christ? Um, another issue the church had to deal with were scholars had called the charismata. These were ultra-charismatic leaders, not in the sense of like gifts or anything, but just huge personalities. Um, and they were usurping established authority and sowing discourse among the communities. So now you've got another problem that the early church started to deal with, disunity. Um, <clears throat> some documents even seem to suggest that the charismata possibly had supernatural gifts, Paul speaks a little about this in 1 Corinthians 10 and following passages about divisions in the church. So 
I've already given two New Testament references that are mostly, they are written for the most part before a lot of this is going on, but also concurrent. And they really start to come to fruition. They come full on blown in the, in the end of the first and second century, almost like when all the apostles are off the scene, like all of these, these leaders and those following them, they now see this is their chance kind of to take over. Um, and so we've got seeds in the New Testament of larger problems that are going to come out later. Um, <clears throat> so Paul's writing about this. Um, a lot of early writings stress the unity of the church. Clement of Rome, he's, what, uh, he's the first bishop of Rome. And by bishop, I just mean like senior pastor. It doesn't have the official connotation of what we think about now of like in the Roman church or Methodist church. Um, <clears throat> he wrote a letter in AD 96. This is the first Christian document we have following the writings of the apostles. Um, he wrote, he had a concern regarding the crisis of leadership and division in the Corinthian church. So Clement is still after following up with Paul, and the Corinthians still have problems even after Paul is off the scene. He urged his readers to find their unity in Christ, but more specifically in those who had been appointed to oversee their church. He wrote, Let us reverence the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us esteem those who have the rule over us, overseers. Let us honor the presbyters among us. Clement also called upon the troublemakers to repent and submit. Um, his reasoning for expecting Christians to submit was this. God had chosen and appointed Jesus. Jesus had chosen and appointed the apostles. The apostles had chosen and appointed their successors, etc., etc. And so in the early church, this was known as what is called apostolic succession. Jesus appointed the apostles. Apostles appointed their successors. They appoint their successors. They say this preserved the truth of the apostolic message and Clement of Rome writes on the importance of unity. I believe, yeah, no, no, I don't believe. The Reformed Church today, we don't hold to this. We hold that the message itself is the form of apostolic succession, that we are faithfully proclaiming what the apostles proclaimed, not that brother A anointed brother B and anointed brother C. And this is, you already kind of see where you can see us, the, the Reformation part of the issues that came up in the Reformation way back in the early church, right? And, but I think Clement's point still stands that those who are creating disunity should not create disunity. And if there are issues in the church, then, you know, they need to work it out as brothers and sisters, but not usurp authority. And so now the early church is also dealing with this. Um, let's see. Do, do, do. Oh, okay. So some think about the, these charismatic, these leaders. Paul and Clement were writing about may have been in part of an early form of Gnosticism, which we'll talk about maybe next week or week three. Um, that was a, a, a very difficult and trying heresy that the church had to deal with. And so you see possible seeds of it here in, in the first century. Um, <clears throat> let's see. The early communities also had to deal with Roman citizens. The communities with the church communities would gather on Sundays, sing psalms, and usually have feasts. Those who wanted to join a community were called catechumens and had to go through a three-year process of learning the faith before they could be baptized. Part of the reason of this is because Roman citizens would pretend to be part of the community, spy on them, and then possibly report them to the authorities. Early Christians were persecuted 
And so the communities, because they were so small, put in safeguards against being discovered, for if they were discovered, a whole entire community could be wiped out instantly. Um, and so in light of those cultural practices we had discussed earlier, do you think new members should go through a catechizing process? And if so, how long do you think it should be? That is a loaded question, but. <laughs> I, I don't have an answer, but I, I will say, I read a history of the First Great Awakening, and it was fascinating because, so this 1730s, 1740s, Jonathan Edwards, those types of people, they, the church had the exact same question. Like, if someone comes in and says, Jeez, I love Jesus, okay, now what do we do? Is, is it sincere? Like, well, how do we decide whether or not to welcome this person? And so anyway, just. Yeah, no. See, the same problems keep coming up. Same problems. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between welcoming the person and membership, though, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, that, that's... Yeah, just how do we know if someone is in or out sincerely based on their word and their life and everything? Because only God judges the heart, but we're kind of called to be fruit inspectors, so what do you do? Is it fair to say we're all called always to minister to people in whatever circumstance we may find them. If someone comes in and says, I love Jesus, we should uh, disciple them and minister to them. On the other hand, we ask questions when people join the church or when they go through the process of the discovery class or whatnot. I personally find the depths of those questions quite extensive. And I think it would be hard for someone who is um, recently become aware of Christ's work Mm -hmm. to be able to answer with understanding <laughs> about the things they're saying, yeah, yeah, I do, I will. Uh, and so I think there is some value of having some level of maturity for people to be able to, for their own spiritual sake, yeah. be able to honestly answer the questions and understand, to confidently answer the question. But knowledge is not a prerequisite for salvation that's correct and god bestows wisdom on people to serve mm -hmm. where he calls them and the church trying to gatekeep ministry can prevent people who are truly called by making them go through lessons and get church knowledge when the wisdom that God bestowed is already there. Okay. Well, there is some, there's definitely precedence for gatekeeping some of this, right? Not many of you should presume to teach is definitely a precedence. Precedence, sure, but. This I is guess that's a good point. Not that everyone who comes in says, I love Jesus becomes an elder. Like, yeah. Now, they weren't only catechizing to safeguard, they were catechizing to your disciples. We have to remember their context. They're, they are nothing like we have today. Like you said, we, we don't fear persecution. So I think they're trying to balance discipling, spreading the word, but also trying to preserve these small communities because they could be wiped out like that. Like I said, we don't experience that today. Go ahead, Brian. One of the things that I think might be helpful, because you were talking about context earlier, one of the things is a lot of these people are Got to remember that way. So the only way they're going to learn what they're going to learn is not through oh I got to get out of the local bookstore, buy a scroll, and just take it home and read it. Right? Though that is documented, like what happened next with the fellow in the chariot. 
but it's also, um, but even then, he wasn't, he wasn't reading the letters of Paul, right? He wasn't reading the letter from Paul. So the catechism is that's a part of the moral tradition that they, they are, that we can't even, you can't even fathom, we can't, unless you've actually seen kids memorize large tracts from the time they were seven or eight years old. You can't fathom the amount of stuff that these guys had to carry around in their heads. And part of that catechizing is putting it in there so then they can meditate on the work that they're getting, and then they can come back, and it may take a while, depending on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, for them to come back and say, okay, so I've been saying this, I've been repeating this, I've been thinking about this, what exactly does this mean? I'm a Greek living in Philippi, I have no context, I've never been to Jerusalem, I don't know what Galilee looks like, right? Tell me about this, explain mm -hmm. this to me. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's better, actually, to think about it, it was better that we're not large congregations in the sense of what we would call megachurches, but these are House you're just folks living in the neighborhood, yeah. maybe six or seven or eight or fifteen or maybe depending on the size of the city, upwards to a hundred, but they're not all meeting in one building at one time. Right. Plays aren't big. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of nuance to it. Yeah. So when we say catechizing and we kind of go, well, there's so much more to it. That's what's one of the ways that they're reading scripture. It's not just who made you God? What else did God do? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things for his own glory? Like the teach our kids. Or even, you know, what is the chief end of man? It's 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 you know, have you know, the Ten Commandments, it's rabbinic tradition, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, No, they're passing down the faith in in their historic context. And so we're I kind of already see like we're kind of struggling to comprehend what it was like for them because we can't even fathom it. And thus, my, one of my reasons for studying church history. What did our brothers and sisters experience thousands of years ago that we can learn from, that we can appreciate, that we can be encouraged by? And then as Dan said, look to Christ and how he's built his church over 2,000 years. I don't know, to me, that's, it's a very encouraging thing. If, ever, if persecution ever came to this country to this extent that was going on in the first century, I'm looking back at these guys and seeing how they did it and dealt with it. And so for me, it's, it's, it's an encouragement and just amazing how God preserves his church and then builds it throughout time. So then we do get into, we'll get into, let's see, I have still time, um, a little more focused on persecutions in the first century. Um, <clears throat> one of the also things they had to deal with was syncretism in the Roman Empire. Um, and the shorthand, basically, even all of the, the faiths, so the Roman Empire had a whole bunch of faiths going on. Um, they had different gods with different names. If you ever read uh, Augustine's City of God, he goes through like every patron saint that the empire ever, ever had. That's why the thing is so huge. Um, uh, basically, in one sense, you could say all paths lead to God, or you had to worship a God or a specific God for the benefit of the empire, and eventually the benefit for the emperor. Um, the Christians could not agree with this, 
And the empire saw Christians as, quote, unbending fanatics who insisted on the sole worship of their one God, an alien cyst that must be removed for the good of society. So the early Christians were persecuted, in a sense, for holding to a one true God, an exclusive view. Um, persecution had existed in the New Testament church from the beginning. We say that Stephen was the first martyr in Acts. Can someone read that for me, please? Jeff? And now that they heard these things, they were enraged, and they crowned their feet But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed toward together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He won. And failing to his, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. All right, thank you. So Stephen technically is considered the first martyr of the, Christ, of the New Testament church, that era. Um, <clears throat> almost all of the apostles were killed, according to tradition. So I'm passing out a sheet that actually lists some of the early martyrs. In the top left, I have a list of how possibly all the apostles were died, according to tradition. Um, so they were all persecuted, executed. James killed with a sword. Peter hung on a cross. He requested that he would be hung upside down because he did not feel worthy to be hung right side up like Christ was. Andrew was hung from an olive tree. Thomas burned alive. Philip was crucified. Matthew beheaded. Nathaniel crucified. James thrown from the temple. Simon crucified. Judas Thaddeus beaten with sticks. Matthias stoned on a cross. Paul beheaded. And John died of a natural death, although he was exiled. Um, and so all the apostles, the foundation of the church, were wiped out, <coughs> persecuted. Persecution was very real for the early church. In one sense, it's, it's all they knew in their, in their relation to the Roman Empire and its government and its citizens. Um, Christians were also blamed for causing natural disasters due to refusing to worship the deities that protected communities. The Emperor Nero blamed Christians for a great, the Great Fire of Rome in AD 64. He had some of them rounded up. Tac Tacitus, a Roman historian, writes this. <clears throat> An immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. So Nero used Christians for lam as lamps for his garden. I'd, we can't even, we, we don't even know, we don't understand that in our American Western context. We, we don't. <clears throat> Tacitus, who did not like Christians, was actually deeply moved, what he called an atrocity. He writes a few sentences later, 
Even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. The, the persecutions in, in one sense were brutal. Um, I don't want to say that they were, oops, they were uh, constant and nonstop. They seemed to be sporadic. Um, persecutions arose out of the populace instead of uh, the government for the most part. Citizens would charge Christians with cannibalism because they said they ate the body and blood of Christ. Um, they were charged with incest falsely and charged with being atheists. They were called atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods. A lot of the charges were never verified by authorities, and many were persecuted just because they were Christians. This prompted some writers who have become known as apologists to write to the authorities in protests of this. Um, Justin Martyr, he's on that sheet I handed out. Um, it gets his last name because he was martyred. He's one of the early apologists, and he is credited with being the first Christian to write a defense of the faith. Um, he wrote to the emperor in, eight, in 155 AD, so I know we're in second century, um, basically saying, stop allowing Christians to be persecuted just because they are Christian. He, con he contradicted the rumors about the Christians and said they were good citizens. They paid their taxes, they conducted business appropriately, and they helped their neighbors. He called on the emperor to end his unreasonable decrees and to punish people based on their bad behavior, Christian or not. So it sounds like a pretty reasonable request. In addition to this, Justin showed how Christianity was compatible and superior to Greek thought, basically saying that all truth is God's truth. Um, and so let me just skip down a little bit because we're just going to wrap up. Um, martyrs, <clears throat> at this point in time, they were honored above all other Christians. This was like to become the super Christian. And I'll talk more about that next week. Um, because they stayed true to the faith in the midst of persecution, they imitated Christ unto death because Christ died too. And so they were being like Christ at the fullest extent possible. And then I want to close with this statement from one of the early um, church fathers, Tertullian. Um, let me back up. So through the example of martyrs, the early church was forming its identity. And in a sense, martyrs were the prime example of what it meant to be a Christian. Tertullian says, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, by this he means the church grows and expands through persecutions and martyrdoms. One author writes, without martyrdom, the church would never have taken root in the, word of in the world of Tertullian. Without martyrdom, the church would not have spread to the to the Indians in South America, or to China, or Burma, or the islands of the South Seas. The blood of the martyrs is a necessary means for the worldwide application of Christ's great redemptive accomplishment. So that's just a quote I'm reading. I'm not saying I agree with it or disagree with it. But what do you guys think about Tertullian's statement? Is it a, is it a fair statement? Is it accurate? Is it true? That assumes that God is not capable of doing this without that happening, which seems foolish at best. Okay. Um, did you um, say if persecution ever comes to this country, it's here? That's, I mean, that's true, but not to this extent. Right. But um, I don't know whether um, you remember <clears throat> the sermon by Bob Shogren a couple weeks ago. Yes about um, dog theology and cat theology. Mm -hmm. 
And as I look back to the early church, um, they were dogs. They were they existed to give God the glory. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about them. Mm -hmm. They were ready to give their lives to give glory to God. And I think the reason why we're you're doing this is we have to be ready to do that. Yeah. We have to see what they did for mm -hmm. us and what we have to be ready to do for our children mm -hmm. and our grandchildren. Yep. Thank you for that. Yeah. I would say correlation is not causation, but I agree with that. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyone else? I mean, you can't I prove the counterfactual. Leave or you say that? When you say seed, okay, I mean, that's where it grew from. I mean, the church grew from the blood of Christ, not from the blood of martyrs. Um, was it required? No. Did it help? Likely. Um, but I don't know that it's the seed, per se. Fertilizer. <laughs> I would say that I would say that martyrdom is the byproduct, can be the byproduct of obedience. Byproduct of obedience. Of obedience. Yeah. Our, our culture doesn't necessarily believe in good and evil anymore, right? Postmodern world, but good and evil very much exist, and if those carrying the gospel are met with resistance and they cave, they may save their life, but the level of commitment to the point of death is that's the level of commitment we need. Yeah. And it's going to result in death because it is a real bad. It's spiritual in one sense, but it becomes physical. Yeah. And so is that level of commitment necessary? Absolutely. Over the course of human history, will people die because of it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, that's actually a really good segue to wrapping up because that's kind of why I, I'm, I love church history and I'm excited to do this to encourage us to be more committed to our faith. Um, not in a guilt-ridden sense, but in a sense that there are those who have come before us, paid in one sense the ultimate sacrifice to be faithful to Christ. And it's Christ that upholds us right it's not our working up and doing it but we can look to the good that the church has done and as we have some disagreement on the statement we can also look to the bad and learn from it and try not to repeat it so that's kind of my goal for this over the next couple of weeks or so just to encourage you in your faith to learn more about your family the church's family um, so you can grow and become more like Christ that's the that's my whole intent behind all of this so I'm running out of time so Someone with my camera want to pray for us? Sure. Yeah, thank you. We thank you, God, that you are that you are the Lord of all history, uh, the Lord of those who have gone before us, the Lord of us today, and the Lord of those who will come after us. We pray you continue to use all that we learn to grow us, not just merely in head knowledge, but as disciples, as followers of you, uh, that you would strengthen our faith, our trust, that even like Stephen, we would be able to see beyond the temporal, we would see that that is eternal, and it would drive us uh, 
uh, more and more to follow you with a joy and passion. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.